I'm entitling this message, Final Words. It's not only the final words of 2 Timothy, but almost certainly we have no other evidence that Paul wrote any other words. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 19, he concludes this letter by saying, Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus stayed in Corinth, but Trophimus I have left in Miletus sick. Do your utmost to come before winter. Eubulus greets you as well as Puddins, Linus, and Charlie Brown. No, it doesn't say Charlie Brown. I just made that up. It's Claudia and all the brethren. The Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. In this letter, we've seen great themes in each chapter. In chapter 1, we talked about how Paul told Timothy to guard the treasure of the gospel. In the second chapter, we were told, be prepared, be prepared to suffer hardship. In chapter 3, we were told, persevere. And in chapter 4, it began with, preach the word. Again, in this last chapter, in that final charge, when Paul tells Timothy, preach the word in verse 1 and in verse 2 and in verse 5, the implication is preach the gospel, reach the world. Then there was a final warning. Men are going to turn from sound doctrine. They're going to embrace satanic doctrine in verses 3 and 4. Paul wants Timothy to be sure to understand that what you believe matters. Right thinking and right teaching and right believing is going to lead to right living. Paul warned about a dangerous man named Alexander the coppersmith who had done the apostle great harm in verses 14 and 15. And then the subject of apostasy meant that he was going to have to talk about some difficult things. Like he would have to name names. And so it is with false teachers and false prophets. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 24, that false prophets would come. Paul's final testimony was that he fought the good fight. He finished the cause. He kept the faith in verses 6 and 7. There were some final requests. Come quickly in verse 9. Bring Mark in verse 11. Some precious articles, a cloak, the books, the parchments in verse 13. And you'll remember his final sorrow and final song. The final sorrow, Demas had forsaken him in verse 10, along with his other Roman friends in verse 16. It was Samuel Butler who wrote that friendship is like money, easier made than kept. But Paul's attention quickly turns not to those people who have disappointed him, but to the God who was ever present, 
who delivered him from the lion and who would eventually deliver him into the kingdom of heaven in verse 17 and 18. When we write in our culture and society, we usually begin by saying, dear so-and-so, and we usually sign it, yours truly. But in the ancient world, they would end their letters with final greetings and some news. In the ancient world, it began with self-identification. And then it ended with personal notes. And so when we read these words, we should ask ourselves, who are these people? And why did they matter so much to the Apostle Paul? I think that if you take the time just for a moment and begin to think about the passage that you just read, some of you are going to come up with the answer. I think you're going to begin to understand that you can't go through a ministry and you can't minister for a decade or two decades or three decades and not form friendship. Ministry requires friends. I know that you know that we all need friends, but some of you perhaps are less likely to form friendships and relationships. As we go through life, you might make friends with someone who's downright famous. Sometimes we make friends with people who are well-known or less known or even largely unknown. These names at the end of this precious letter may not mean a whole lot to you, but they mean a whole lot to Paul. And again, I was telling you about my grandma who was born in 1919. My, my granny used to say, true friends are like diamonds, precious but rare. False friends are like autumn leaves. You can find them everywhere. Friends, it's almost impossible to go through life and not have them. Paul moves from the subject of man's unfaithfulness in verse 16 to God's faithfulness in verse 18 to these closing greetings to these most important friends and their special friends. Look at verse 19. Greet Prisca and Aquila. And the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus stayed in Corinth, but Trophimus I have left in Miletus sick. Paul begins by asking Timothy, greet. That word greet, it sounds like a drug. As a pazamei. If I were to name a drug, I would want to call it razmatazepan. As a pazamei is a word that's interesting in the Greek language. It's a word that contains elements of affection. Now remember what I said to you earlier. In the ancient world, they would close the letter with greetings and news. And sometimes that's hard for us to process, unless you grew up in the 60s, like me, 
Remember in 1967, the Beatles had a very famous song, you say goodbye and I say hello, hello, hello. I don't know why you say goodbye, I say hello. With that song, they said, hey, let's turn things on their head. Let's turn things upside down. And that's exactly in the ancient world what they would do. The word greet meant to open or enfold your arms or embrace. If you grew up in the South, it wouldn't be unusual for you to hear somebody say, child, come here and hug me. Maybe you've grown up in a world where people would say, hug me, I'm a hugger. That's what this word means. It means to embrace. The word came to mean salute or welcome joyfully. But like I said, in its roots, it contains elements of affection. So Prisca and Aquila are better known as Priscilla and Aquila. Some of you are familiar with this couple. They're first mentioned in the book of Acts, chapter 18, verses 1 through 3. There we discover that Paul meets them, he befriends this couple in Corinth, then he'll travel with them to Syria in Acts 18, verse 18. We know that Aquila, whose name means eagle, was a Jew. He was born in Pontus. Pontus was the ancient part of Turkey that connected the land bridge of Asia with the land bridge of Europe. And so we know that he was a Jew. We know that he was born in Pontus. We know that the couple was driven out of Italy when Claudius commanded that all Jews would be exiled or expelled from Rome. In the book of Romans, Paul sends his greetings to Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers. This is in Romans 16, verses 3 through 5. He says, Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their lives for my sake, or actually, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. In other words, when he says that, he says, this couple, you may not know this couple, but this couple saved my life. And if there are churches, guess what? You owe them a debt of gratitude as well. You know, it's impossible to plant a church and participate in ministry without forming friendships and relationships as we go along the path called life. And so, again, Paul remembers this couple with tender fondness. He also says in Romans chapter 16, verses 3 through 5, at the end of verse 5, he says, likewise greet the church that is in their house. That may not mean a whole lot to you, but it means a whole lot to me because that means that the church in Rome met in Priscilla and Aquila's house. We also know that the church at Corinth met at Priscilla and Aquila's house. Like Paul, we also know their occupation. They were tent makers. 
Paul calls them my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. It may come as a shock to you, but some 70% of all pastors in the United States of America are what we call bivocational. Most, church, most pastors have to work. They have to have another job. The church can't completely support them, and so they work. So Paul, again, notes they put their own lives on the, their line to, to save Paul. That's high praise. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 19, and I've been struggling with the same flu-like crud that's been going around. Yeah, I hear you hacking and coughing. So if I pull out my handkerchief, it isn't for dramatic effect. It's because I'm going to have to cough into it. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 19, we see Paul greeting Aquila and Priscilla again with the church that met in their house. In 1 Corinthians 16, 20, it says, all the brethren greet you. Now again, I think that this is amazing. Here's this couple who are with Paul in Corinth. They're with Paul in Rome. They're with Paul in Ephesus. This is fairly amazing. It could be that Paul stayed with this couple in their home in Rome for as long as a year and a half. Most of you are aware that the early church didn't meet in buildings. The early church met in homes. They conducted worship and communion and prayer and study groups in their homes. A lot of churches are shifting in meeting in homes. In China, it's becoming almost impossible to have a church. They have 300 million Christians in China, but the government is driving them underground. It's impossible to be a Christian in North Korea. And so believers have to gather under the radar. Later in Acts chapter 18, verse 24, we're introduced to a man named Apollos from Alexandria who's described as eloquent and mighty in the scriptures. He came to Ephesus but apparently was only familiar with the baptism of John. It says in Acts chapter 18 verse 26, when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. It's interesting to me when I read in 1 Corinthians and the book of Acts that often Priscilla's name is going to to precede her husband Aquila. A lot of scholars have wondered why is that? It would appear even from Paul's writings that there's a kind of ascendancy if you will of powerful personality and in this particular instance in Acts chapter 18 verse 26 when Luke writes when Aquila and Priscilla heard him they took him aside. Not just Aquila but Priscilla and Aquila. Apparently, this knowledgeable couple were able to minister effectively. And I'm going to suggest to you, because they're in Ephesus, because they're in Corinth, and because they're in Rome, they're getting around. People know who they are. In their day, they would have been quite famous. 
So let's connect the dots. Paul meets these faithful friends in Corinth. They flee Italy after their expulsion by Claudius. You may or may not know this, but Claudius was the emperor of Rome from 41 AD to 53 AD. We don't know the exact date that Claudius kicked all the Jews out of Rome, but if it was sometime in the 40s, that means that they ministered for some time. They leave Rome. They go to Ephesus in Acts chapter 18. They later return to Rome in Romans chapter 16, verse 3. Then they leave Corinth, go to Ephesus... When Paul is writing these words, it's somewhere between 67 and 68 AD. For those of you who are mathematicians, do the math. 48, 58, possibly 68. That means that these people have known each other for some 30 years and have ministered on two different continents. And so, now all of a sudden we begin to understand something. It may just be a name to you, but these are people who meant the world to Paul. It should cause you to ask this question Who do I consider my friend? Who are our real friends? In the book of Proverbs, in Proverbs 17, 17, it says, A true friend is always loyal. A brother is born in time of need. What kind of a friend are you? You know, there's a big difference, I think, between knowing someone, being acquainted with someone, loving someone with conviction and loyalty. According to the Bible, a friend loves at all times in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 7. Friends stick around in time of sorrow. Friends stick around in times of need and distress. My father used to say, friends help you move. Good friends help you move the body. There is a kind of a friend that sticks closer than a brother. But according to the Bible, real friendship, real friendship, real friendship is found in Jesus Christ the Lord. You'll remember in John 15, 15, we have Jesus saying, No longer do I call you servants. For a servant doesn't know what his master's doing. But I call you friends for all things that I heard from my father, I've made known to you. The Lord has every right to call us servants or slaves, and Jesus deserves the title of master. But in that simple statement by Jesus, we're given comfort and reassurance that make no mistake about it, Jesus doesn't just simply see you as a follower. He wants to see you as a friend. And so your friendships in Christ are supposed to bring reassurance. They're supposed to bring comfort. We're supposed to love like Jesus loves. Most of us will never have to die for someone, but some might. We can still practice sacrificial love. We can still listen. We can still help. We can still encourage. We can still be gener gener generous. 
So at this point in the passage, I'm going to invite you to think about something at this very moment. Can you think of someone right now in your life? Can you think of someone right now who could use your friendship? That your presence in their life really does make a difference. Is there someone that you call friend that needs your help? The second person who's mentioned, greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. You'll remember he was mentioned in chapter 1, verse 16. If you have your Bible, you might want to just turn back to chapter 1, verse 16, where we read, The Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. The Lord grant to him that he might find mercy from the Lord in that day that you may know very well how many ways he ministered to me in Ephesus. When Paul is writing to Timothy, he's reminding Timothy of how important this relationship was and this fellowship was and that friendship was. The special friend of Paul must have played a major role in Paul's life and ministry. His name, Onesiphorus, means useful. It actually could be translated, he brings profit. Scholars debate whether or not this Onesiphorus is a, because he shares the same name with a guy named Onesimus. Onesimus was a runaway slave in the little book of Philemon, and it is a legitimate contraction of the name Onesiphorus. In other words, Onesimus, it was like a nickname for Onesiphorus. Whether or not it's the same person, we don't know. But the apostle speaks and he uses terms to describe him. Blessing. Grant mercy. He refreshed me. He wasn't ashamed of my chain. In other words, when he got to Rome, Paul was thrown in jail. And this was a person who loved him and cared for him and stood by him under the most difficult of circumstances. Paul reminds Timothy that when Onesiphorus showed up in Rome, he conducted an aggressive search for Paul. And he found Paul. And you've got to understand something. In the first century, when Paul is in Rome, Rome is the first city in that Mediterranean area that has over a million people. So this is not just some small city. This is a large city. And in the ancient world, when you would use the term household, and so when he talks about the household of Onesiphorus, it would have included the immediate family. It would have included servants. It would have included dependents. It could very well be that Onesiphorus has now left Rome and returned to Ephesus. But you know what else is possible? That when Paul says, greet the household of Onesiphorus, the household is in Ephesus, but it's possible at this point that Onesiphorus is in fact dead. Did he die in one of Nero's purges? When Paul says, may he find mercy from the Lord in that day, 
it might be a reference to his death. And if that's the case, this was a tender way of saying, you've heard the expression, may God have mercy on your soul. In that culture, in that society, it was an expression that you would use to describe someone that you loved and you cared about, that they have already gone. And the only thing that's left is judgment. In verse 20, Paul mentions a man named Erastus. See where it says, Erastus stayed in Corinth. There's another Erastus mentioned in Romans chapter 16, verse 23. There, Paul offers greetings from Erastus, the city treasurer, who happens to be the city treasurer in Corinth. Archaeologists have actually found his name, Erastus, chiseled into stone. I've seen it with my own eyes. And so, if he was the city treasurer in Corinth, it's quite possible that he was well off and that Erastus used that generosity in order to help fund Paul's ministry. You know, we, we look at a person and we see what they've done and we understand the sacrifices that were made, but often we fail to see the people behind the scenes that make ministry possible. Now again, Paul wrote the book of Romans from Corinth in about 56 AD. What does that mean? That means that again, this Erastus, when he's giving him the news, Erastus stayed in Corinth. Timothy would have been well aware of who he was and his ministry. And then he says, Trophimus is mentioned in Acts chapter 20 verse 4. In Acts chapter 21, verse 29. Again, this name may not mean a whole lot to you, but we know from the book of Acts chapter 20 and Acts chapter 21, this man came into a right relationship with God in Christ in Ephesus. Paul is ministering. Paul gives the gospel. Trophimus hears the gospel and receives Christ as his savior. He travels from Ephesus with Paul to Jerusalem. This is the Trophimus who the religious leaders believed Paul had taken into the temple. So those of you who are familiar with the book of Acts, you'll remember that Paul is going to make a vow. He's going to make his way back to the temple in Jerusalem. There's a sign on the gate. There's a gate of the Gentiles, and then there's a gate of the women, and there's a gate of the men listed on the gate is if you are a Gentile, you can go no further than this. They accused Paul of bringing Trophimus, a Gentile, past the gate. And so this is that Trophimus. And then Paul tells Timothy that he left Trophimus sick in Miletus, in the care of friends. Miletus is a city that's about 30 miles south of Ephesus. And I've been to, it's called Kusadisi is the modern name. But if you look at Ephesus and you go south, about 30 miles, it's actually 48 kilometers, is the city of Miletus. 
Now, again, this may not mean a whole lot to you, but this verse tells us something very important. So when Paul says he left Trophimus sick in Miletus, in the New Testament, we see Paul used by God over and over again to pray for the sick. We see that the sick experience miraculous recovery. And if Paul had the gift of healings, which I believe that he did, why did Paul leave Trophimus sick at Miletus? Some have argued that this verse proves that the supernatural gifts of healings are subject to the sovereign will of God. And so for the person who says, God has to heal you, God must heal you, it is your Christian birthright, I'm going to suggest to you that that's not true. That the gifts of healings aren't a matter of personal convenience, but rather they were primarily as a sign for unbelieving Jews and unbelieving Gentiles that the gospel is true. Can we pray for the sick? Of course we can. Can we expect them to be healed? Of course we can. Can we insist that they be healed? I'm going to suggest to you that the answer is no. That God and his sovereignty, for reasons that are unknown to me, allow people to experience suffering, pain, sickness. And so, we see this final special request. Look what it says in verse 21. Do your utmost to come before winter. Eubulus greets you, as well as Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brethren. In this verse, we're given a lot of clues. Do your utmost come before winter. What does that mean? Clearly, it's not winter when he's writing it. One of the things that you should be able to do is, whenever Paul wrote this, it had to have probably been either spring or summer. The shipping lanes leaving Ephesus or Troas would sometimes close because of winter storms. Only the daring, only the foolish would brave the seas in winter. We also don't know anything about the people who are named in this verse. Here's what we do know. These names are Latin in origin. The way that I would put it is these are Roman names. And by the way, not everyone with a Roman name was Roman. There are early church traditions that name Linus as Peter's successor. According to the Roman Catholic tradition, Linus is the second bishop of Rome. We don't have any hard evidence to support that. We also know that although everyone had forsaken Paul, with the exception of Luke, apparently there were a few friends and brethren who offer this greeting. What I want to draw to your attention is this. The list has included the, the well-known, Priscilla and Aquila, the less-known, and the unknown. What do the well-known, the less-known, and the unknown 
all have in common? Paul cared about them. They were important to him. They were important to him and they were important to his ministry. Even though his ministry is now coming to a close. I haven't always had the opportunity to thank all of you. But guess what? Over the years since Mary and I came here, the ministry itself has quite literally been made possible by you. You've made the ministry possible. Some of you are well known. Some less known. Some of you are unknown. One of the real tragedies is to, to me is to make sure that you at least know each other. That's why I'm so excited about 2020. That's why I'm so excited about the vision, no pun intended, 2020. The vision for the church in 2020. Because the church has always been about worship and discipleship and evangelism. But there's a growing, growing commitment for community. It's nice to be important, but it's more important to be nice. I have to give credit where credit is due. My granny said that. She's the one who taught me. It's nice to be important, but it's way more important to be nice. And then finally, look at this blessing. The Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. The way this verse reads in the original language lends me to believe that the phrase, the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, it's directed to Timothy, who the letter is directed to. Why do I believe that? Because that expression, your spirit, in the original language is singular. The next phrase, grace be with you, that second you, is directed to everyone who is with Timothy in Ephesus. That's plural. And so when he says, the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Again, that might not seem like a big deal to you, but it's a huge deal to me. In John chapter 4, verse 24, when Jesus was speaking to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, he said to her that God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. When he says, the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, one of the questions I get asked often on my radio program is, what's the difference between your soul and your spirit? And Arguably, the words soul and spirit are used interchangeably in the New Testament. Because your soul is that invisible part of you that has the ability to think and, and to respond. It's emotion and will. But I'm going to suggest to you that the difference between the soul and the spirit, the soul is the invisible part of you, but your spirit, when you're born again by the Holy Spirit, your spirit is that which gives you the ability to have friendship and relationship with God himself. 
That's why as much as we would like to think that our family and our friends who aren't Christians, who tell you that they talk to God, that they love God, that they believe in God, that they pray to God, that they have no connection to God. Because unless you're born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, you do not have the ability to have a friendship and a relationship and the ability to make a connection to God. So in that simple phrase, the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Again, we remember what it says in 1 John. He who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son does not have life. The possibility of you having life lies in Jesus. So what are your resources in time of trial? What are your resources in time of trouble? What are your resources when you come right up to the end? In this little book, the apostle says, faith in chapter 1 verse 5 the holy spirit in chapter 1 verse 14 the word of god in chapter 3 verses 14 through 17 the grace of our lord jesus christ in chapter 2 verse 1 and now again at the close of the chapter chapter 4 verse 22 grace be with you you're going to need to have faith you're going to need the holy spirit you're going to need the word of God. You're going to need the grace of God. But I, think, I don't think I'm overstating it when I say you're going to need each other. You're going to need each other. You're going to need to form friendships and relationships and minister to one another. Other resources includes the Lord's faithfulness and power in chapter 2, verse 13. Chapter 4, verse 17. The separation from people who are heretics and apostates in chapter 2, verse 20. These are bad teachers and bad teaching. And of course, the Lord's reward. These are the resources. These are the resources that are going to strengthen you that are going to be with you. These are the resources that you're going to need when you begin the final part of your journey in Christ. Chuck Swindoll wrote, quote, even as he wrote, Paul felt the approach of death and he knew the time to pass the torch had come by virtue of this letter the flame of divine truth passed from the hand of Paul to the hand of Timothy and eventually to your hand as well, unquote. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy has given me the great privilege of passing on to you all of the things that I think are most important. Most important. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to be here and I'm going to be there. But I'm going to be watching you. I'm going to be praying for you. I'm going to be rooting for you. William MacDonald writes, quote, Here he lays down his pen. The letter's finished. 
his ministry is over. But the fragrance of his life and testimony abide with us still, and we shall meet him again, and we will talk with him again about the grand themes of the gospel and the church. And so the benediction is powerful. The Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Remember, his ministry started in strength and continued in strength and ended in strength, but it also started in grace, continued in grace, and concluded in grace. Pastor Chuck Smith many years ago wrote a book entitled, Why Grace Changes Everything. And it's interesting to me, the apostle of grace doesn't vent, he doesn't complain, he doesn't curse his circumstances, he doesn't share doubts about his imprisonment, or the gospel, or grace. The Puritan writer John Owen wrote, quote, if grace doesn't change human nature, I don't know what grace does. In the modern vernacular, if grace doesn't change who I am, then I have no idea what grace does. Chuck Smith was right. Grace changes everything. It changes who you are. It changes who you meet and who you care about. It changes friendship and relationship. And the last thing I want to tell you, it changes the future. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray for this church. And again, I pray for its leaders. I pray for its future. Lord, I pray that it will continue to be a church that begins in grace, continues in grace, and, and until the coming of the Lord Jesus, that it will be marked by grace. And so again, Lord, we thank you, we praise you, we glorify you for this great book and its great themes. Lord, I pray that we will be ever mindful to guard the treasure of the gospel. Lord, I pray that we would be forever committed to be prepared to suffer hardship, that we would persevere, and that this church would be a church that preaches the word in Jesus' name. Amen.